Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 460, is recorded live August 17th, 2020. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I am most excellent. Thanks for having me on. And how are you this evening? I am doing wonderful. Uh, weather's been, you just can't beat it. I mean, this is great Michigan weather. I'd, I'd like this all year. I could have this all year, all year round. Yeah, it's a, little, it's, it's a little muggy, but uh, we'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, maybe I've just been pretty fortunate. We haven't, I mean, it has been the, with the air conditioning now, uh, you can, you know, you get too muggy and you come on inside. I'd like to thank everybody's in the chat room. Have a, have a full chat room tonight. We have, uh, Dave and Derek and Eric and Karen and Rick have all shown up and are in the chat room. So, uh, welcome. And hopefully, uh, you enjoy listening to us live. Uh, Mac is uh, not going to be able to make it this week, so we'll, uh, we'll catch up with him next time. I, we did see him over the weekend, and we'll talk about some of the dives that were going on. First article we have up is talking about uh, a solution for weeds, and what they're recommending is maybe you need to hire some scuba divers. They said the mission is to take uh, lake weeds lurking underwater off the beach and dock. Uh, so that they don't have to go in the water with uh, weeds wrapped around their legs. Uh, so they have hired scuba divers who methodically swim back and forth, uh, search for hundreds of pounds of invasive curly-leaf pondweed, Eurasian milfoil, pulling up the plants by hand and piling armloads of the vegetation on shore to be composted. Uh, after an hour of work, they declare the mission accomplished. Uh, diver Joe Reachling said, Sandy Bottom Baby. Using scuba divers underwater weed pullers is a service offered by Matt Wilkie's Dive Guys. This is a Twin Cities-based company offering eco-friendly, chemical-free weed removal. Who would have thought? It's super unusual, said Maria Watts. A uh, Chicago investment banker said she's hired the company pull up lake weeds in her house in the Twin Lakes, Wisconsin, for about three years. She was uncomfortable using chemicals to kill the weeds and said the results were better when scuba divers do the job. It's like completely sand bottom, she says. It's definitely initial business, according to Wilkie. Uh, since starting the company with five people in 2014, he now employs nearly three dozen underwater weeders. They yank out underwater weeds, cut the uh, cattails and clear lily pads from lakefront homes, cabin owners throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, Wilkie, a 35-year-old St. Paul native who studied finance at the University of St. Thomas, used to sell insurance and investment products. He's looking for a way to work outdoors. When he heard of a friend who had a side job pulling underwater weeds, he decided why not give it a try and start his own company. He holds a permit with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources as one of about 30 companies that people can hire in the state to remove aquatic plants from lakes using cutters, harvesters, rakes, scuba divers, or aquatic pesticides. Those companies are governed by state rules that specify how large an area and the type of vegetation they can clear. 
For example, without an extra permit, the homeowner of the company can only clear about 2,500 square feet of underwater lake weed per property. Lily pad removal about an extra permit is limited to clearing about a 15-foot wide path to get to open water. The rules are designed to balance the desires of homeowners, swimmers, and anglers and preserve the lake ecology and plant and animal habitat, said Shane McBride, who does underwater plant management for the DNR. Some companies use mechanical weed harvesting machines or move weed, but Wilkie said pulling the weeds by hand keeps the water clear of plants longer. Dive Guys charges 50 to 60 cents per square foot in the initial visit on an underwater weed pulling job. Logan Dopp, the Twin Cities Regional Manager for Dive Guy, said the typical jobs on residential lakefoot property cost about $1,000. Subsequent touch-up visits cost less. Wilkie said most of his clients only need one or two visits over the summer to keep their lake sh- their lakefront areas free of weeds. Most of his divers are certif- uh, his employees are certified divers, often the outdoorsy college student or recent grads. Uh, Paul, a 21-year-old Minnesota resident, said he started weed diving as his normal work as a rock climbing instructor and guide dried up because of the pandemic. Anytime I can spend a day outside, it's amazing. Orlin, another dive guy weed puller, was a dive master and scuba instructor from Belize until he met a woman from Minnesota who was on vacation there. They fell in love, got married, and he moved to Minnesota. He wanted to continue his work underwater, even if pulling lake weeds in Minnesota is a bit less glamorous than swimming with sharks, barracuda, and manta rays in the Caribbean. As long as I have a regular mouth, that's my thing, he said. But as summers goes, it's not for everyone. Lake weeds are wet, nasty, and heavy. Some people feel claustrophobic underwater because they can't see very far. Stir up the mud by yanking the weeds out, Dops said. Really, it's a manual labor. We're looking for hardworking young guys who want to put in long days. Starting pay is $15 an hour, but divers quickly get raises if they stay on for the season. It takes a willingness to be in gross conditions all day. Yeah, just kind of a weird weird rig they're using. Uh, look at them. They don't have a BCD, don't have an octo. So they've only got like two lines coming off for their first stage, which is probably just for their second stage and their uh, SPG. So it's kind of a, you know, bare bones rig. And it, yeah, they are working for the a company because they got their logo on the front and they're all using the exact same kind of, uh, you know, tank and, um, not a, you know, just a, not a back plate, but uh, I guess just the strapping they're using to hold, hold the tanks on. Really a bare bones rig, but I guess it works for them. Yeah, I'm- well, I, I wonder how deep the water is. Do they say any? I don't think they say anywhere how deep they they are. So, a lot of this is just trying to make. You know, if you if you got this summer home and it's uh, got a walk in beach, uh, people don't like to swim in the weeds. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, they probably don't have to go out that deep to pull the weeds out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some the, of them they talk about might be for like if you got a dock and you want to let let your boat get out to the channel, you don't want to be getting the prop all caught up with. Uh, some of the other stuff because that was the first thing when i saw the article was thinking how are they getting away with it because some of the things are they talk about cutting uh here in michigan will get you out in all sorts of trouble you know uh but if you're permitted and it looks like they're they're regulating them so they've, they've kind of given them hey you paid this amount of money and you get this certification you're allowed to do these things well and they mentioned removing lily pads and i don't know any anyone who's dealt with lily pad roots but those are some hardcore buggers. I mean, uh, there's, you know, they're, they're basically like logs. I mean, you might be able to cut the soft stalks on them there, but uh, getting those roots out of there, you're going to need a, a bulldozer. So, yeah, yeah, those, those plants have uh, learned to develop the handle. Uh, you can, you can, anybody who's had 
waterfront property. If you just grab them from the top and they go away, they might look pretty for a few days, but everything that's down below will grow back. So that's cool. Yeah, so so that's something. Yeah, you know, your friends ask you what can you do with the scuba tanks. There's there's something you could be doing. And let's see this next one. If I can get where these. is where is let's... Denia, Spain? Yeah, okay. This article's from Spain. Looking yeah. at our next article here. Yeah, it says a scuba diver stumbles across ancient artifacts off Spain's coast. Uh, oh, Spain's Costa Blanca. And I'm I'm already distracted by the first photo. A uh, diver had to find his life when he stumbled across the remains of a pre-Roman era ship off the Sea of Denia. Initial estimates suggest a vessel could date back to the 4th century B.C. The manned scuba diving session also turned up an old container known as Amphora, amongst the wreckage some t- two kilometers off the shores of Les Marines Beach. A professional team have subsequently undercovered another Amphora and part of a ceramic vase during a detailed inspection of the ship's remain, the amateur diver reported his find to the pol- Policia local in Denia, who then brought in the Vatican, nah, I said Vatican, Valician Community Underwater Archaeological Center to study, or to secure any items from the area. The first amphora was found, was said to be well-preserved, probably used to transport food or water. Subject to detailed analysis, experts believe the amphora dates back to the Punic age, some 2,400 years ago. And then look at that candy cane he's holding there. So not only you find amphora, but he has a nice candy cane to chew on. I think you know it's a measuring stick, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can you tell I'm on a diet? Yeah. Everything right. looks like food. <laughs> How's that working for you? <laughs> not, not good. Well, I actually had my doctor's appointment today, and he said I was I was doing well. I'm on the track I need to, which means you're starving all the time and oh, hate so, it. But. So is he measuring a chocolate bar down there? He's measuring a great big chocolate Easter bunny is what it is. Then. Yeah, that's what, that's what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe we shouldn't be talking about food. Well, you guys were talking about those potatoes in the chat room before I got there. Yeah, so. the chat room had all sorts of good stuff. Oh, man. I, I could tell you about some food. We had some good stuff this weekend, but I won't go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you If you go to Mackinac Island... The broken spoke is the bomb, okay? So um, it's kind of like, a, oh, what do you call it? Um, Applebee's on steroids, you know? I mean, it is good good eating there, and it's not that crazy pricey. So, but, okay, I'll I'll quit talking about food just to taunt Darren here. So <laughs> Yeah. Especially, I haven't even had dinner yet tonight, so. Mm, it sounds like you're drinking your dinner there. Oh, yeah. I'll make up for it. Yeah, and an empty stomach, you know, you know that'll be good. So when we start slurring your words and all that. Yeah, I'll be fine. A treasure off the coast, a missing wing of a gold pelican statue from 1715 shipwreck is recovered. Exactly 295 years and 15 days after the Spanish ship sank off the treasure coast, Bonnie Schubert found a small golden statue of a pelican with just one wing in the water near Frederick Douglas Beach in St. Lucie county exactly nine years 317 days later captain henry jones found the missing wing in almost exactly same spot the statue is aboard one of seven uh, seven one of 11 spanish ships laden with treasure from new world bound from havana to the court uh, to the court of king philip the fifth before entering a hurricane 
July 31st, 1715, the shipwreck stretched from the ocean off of St. Lucie Nuclear Plant in St. Lucie County to Sebastian. Schubert found the statue August 15th, 2010. She and her one-person crew, her 87-year-old mother, Joe Schubert, searched about 1,000 feet off the park. Jones found the wing June 28th as he and Nancy Newman, a crew member of the boat Perfect Day, searched about 900 feet off the park. People have been looking for the wing since the bird was found 10 years ago, Newman said. We've looked for it numerous times. So has Schubert. Mom and I worked the same spot until October that year, and we kept hunting the next two years, although not in the same spot. After going a few days in 2014, Joe Schubert's health began to deteriorate. Bo Schubert quit treasure hunting, uh, or Bonnie Schubert, and then Joe Schubert died last year. Bonnie Schubert got back to the hunt this year. Of course, I would love to be there with the one who found it, Bonnie Schubert said. The 5.5-inch tall statue has a cavity in the midsection, which leads experts to think it is a reliquary, a container for holy relics, such as a piece of bone or clothing of a saint meant to hang on chains, some of which has been found in the church or private chapel. It's thought to depict a pelican and her piety. A mother pelican has pricked her own chest to draw blood to feed her starving chicks. Okay. That's a little, that's a little, that's a little morbid. Yeah. So. Uh, to devout Roman Catholics at the time, the pelican represented Christ on the cross, shedding its blood to redeem mankind. Here's how Schubert described the discovery in 2010. I got hit on the metal detector, and I was fanning away at some more sand when I saw it just lying upright in the sand, absolutely perfect and so impossibly gold. Newman's description of Jones' discovery of the wing is eerily similar. Captain Jones and I were diving his metal detector. He got a ping. He brushed away some crushed shell, and at the tip of the wing popped up. It was pretty and shiny and gold. He pulled the wing out of the sand, and things seemed to get surreal. I was thinking, this can't be real, but at the same time, I knew exactly what it was. Even more surreal, Newman had joked, finding the wing that morning. People have been looking for the wing since the bird was found 10 years ago. We've looked for it numerous times. We had a huge map spread out on the floor of the condo trying to figure out where to go that day. I told Henry, let's go find the bird wing. Schubert's find, the one-legged pelican, was sold for 150000 according to 1715 Fleet Queens Jewels LLC, which owns the salvage right to the wrecks. The Northern California Antiquities Collector asked not to be named for fear of break-ins. Of course, I'd love to have the wing who wouldn't. In my wildest dream, I never thought they'd find it. The wing's eventual home is a long way from being determined. It's turned over to the 1715 Fleet Queen Jewels LLC. By law, the state has first dibs on up to 20% of the treasure of each salvage site. It could go to the state or the finder may want to keep it. The collector said, I wouldn't blame them if they did. Bringing the bird and wing together also depends on the collector on what they'll be asking for it. If they offered it to me at a reasonable price, that would be great. When I bought the Pelican, I told Brent, Brisbane Operation Manager, 1715 Fleet Jewel, uh, Queen's Jewels, if you ever find the wing, you owe it to me. If you got the wing, the collector isn't sure he wouldn't. He would have it attached to the rest of the statue. You need someone very talented to do the work correctly. The two pieces could also be displayed together, just not attached. Schubert has no doubts. I think the Pelican needs its wing. I just assume that once the missing piece was found, the bird would be reassembled. It definitely should be. It's an absolutely amazing piece. Meanwhile, the crew of Perfect Day and Bonnie Schubert are back in the water hunting for treasure. Treasure hunting season among the Treasure Coast typically runs through May through September, with the best conditions in June, July, and August. Treasure hunters are finding a needle in the haystack. Only first thing is you have to find the haystack, but we're still out there and will be next year and the year after because there's so much that hasn't been found. 
The bright side of having someone else find the wing, Schubert said, is that it teaches us not to focus on just one thing. Now I can go out and look for treasure anywhere I want to. She paused and added, of course, there's still more of the chain out there. So chain must be part of that uh, <clears throat> that object. Hey, so who wants to go dive the river and find stuff, huh? Now I do. <laughs> yeah. A little yeah, better kind of an interesting there. piece. A little better stuff than what we find in the river here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't say. The, when was the last time we found a uh, a uh, bird pulling its uh, guts out to feed its prey and it's made out of gold? I'd say you're probably a little bit narked if you found that down there. So Yeah. Karen has found a link for the Order of the Pelican. It said M.K. Peerage. What's that? <laughs> and then... Albanese LV shipwreck faces destruction almost a hundred years after running aground. And this one I know Mac would, would love. We, we can almost hear what he would say. So we get to the end, we can chant it. Uh, when LV wrecked on Albany coast in 1921, few might've believed it would be visible nearly a hundred years later, despite wild storms and apparent attempts to cut it up for firewood. But in the eve of its century as a wreck, local sphere could soon be lost for good. It's an important part of the history of Albany, and there are a few parts of history in Albany that are still available, especially out in the beaches, said Frenchman Bay Association President Kathleen McDonald. LV was a flat-bottom transport ship which used to carry ships anchored in Frenchman's Bay. In 1915, the vessel was abandoned at its morning and left for years. Then when a storm hit Albany in 1921, the LV pulled up its mooring in a nearby Whaler's Beach. While another ship anchored with it was lost, the LV lodged itself deep in the shore and has not moved since. It is one of at least 50 known wrecks on the Albany coast. So how important was this? So it was abandoned moored. So I'm picturing that there was uh, some sort of mooring out there off the coast, and there's just a couple derelict vessels there. And then a storm broke it loose, and it came on. And if you look at this photo at the beginning, you can see it was a flat bottom because you, you can see those ribs there. So it must have been so it could get in fairly shallow. And, well, they might have just been, you know, laid out more over time, too. Uh, even a lot of your uh, deep water boats, you know, have a flat bottom. It's kind of hard to mm -hmm. say just how flat the bottom was when you can't see the keel there. Looks like at the extreme right edge of it, you might see a bit of broken keel there. Um, it's kind of hard to know exactly what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it red, probably was something which had outlived its usefulness and was sitting offshore, probably going to be used for a barge at some point. And, uh, you know, either somebody didn't, uh, you know, properly maintain it, keep it pumped out, or uh, check the mooring out once in a while and it got blown in and destroyed. That's the way they go sometimes. Yeah, members of the Frenchman's Bay Association have planned a 30-minute heritage trail through the area's mostly untouched bushlands. The walk could pass through scrub up ocean hills on the beaches uh, that aren't optional on sunny days. It could also include a spot where their LV is resting for now. Uh, McDonald uh, says the wreck's place in the shore has been precarious of late. Some Somebody seems to have vandalized it recently, taking a saw and cutting a piece off and using it for a fire in the beach, which was really shocking. Early August storms have drenched the south coast, bringing winds at 80 kilometers per hour and swells that thrash the beaches in the region. Tons of shoreline was lost to storms pummeling the coast 24 hours, including Whaler's Beach. The storm almost floated the Elvia away. The whole hull was exposed, which nobody had seen here for decades. We're quite concerned it might be washed away and destroyed. 
I think it'd be better off being out a little bit than right there in the surf zone. Uh, Miss McDonald said her group has reached out to the city of Albany and the WA museum to have the right preserved, but she said her attempts have been fruitless. We contacted city of Albany to ask what we could do to make sure it's looked after. Should signage be put up? What should be done? She said, they said it's not the responsibility. It's the WA Maritime Museums. After the storm, we don't know what condition is in anymore because the sand may have covered it up. Undeterred, she said, residents groups who continue to try to preserve the wreck from being lost forever. It's an important part of the history of Albany, and there are a few parts of history in Albany that are still available, especially out on the beaches. Knowing more about the LV and everything it preserved as well as other shipwrecks in the area would be. Well, I'm curious how they plan to preserve it, though. I mean, um, you know, so often when these things are unearthed or uncovered on the shore, there's a public outcry that, hey, let's pull it up, let's resurrect it, let's save it someplace. But people don't realize that really the best place for that wreck is in the water. And being in the water, it's kind of hard to preserve it aside from keeping it safe from being vandalized at this point. Uh, You know, it probably probably would be better off if it was deeper, you know, that it wouldn't get so much storm surge on it. Um, You're more likely to get lost, too, though, because you get a little offshore and it's going to get buried in the sand quite quickly. You know, a lot of these times, these things, they tend to to work their way into the sand because what happens is uh, the wreck doesn't move that much, but the sand gets washed away underneath it. So it ends up eventually falling into a hole. And, you know, we have these in, you know, in in Michigan here all along the shoreline. Uh, You know, there are websites that will show you where they are just everywhere out there. Uh, I, I often quote stuff from Michigan Shipwreck Research Association, but on their page, You'll see the, you know, where there are, you know, literally dozens and dozens of shipwrecks along Michigan's western coast, which are on the shoreline. But over time, the, uh, you know, they they work their way deeper and deeper in the sand. A storm will come out and expose them, but then shortly after, they're they're buried again. And we had that happen with the Whitehall shipwreck uh, two years ago, where storm came along, exposed it, great big massive wreck there. Within two weeks, completely buried again. So, you know, really the best place for them is where they are right now. Keep in mind that wreck has been there for 100 years and it's held up, you know, a lot better than the other ones did. You know, I mean, think about how many of them there are out there that uh, are nothing nothing but scattered boards now. So, uh, you know, if they can preserve it, I'd be interested to hear hear about it, how they do. But mostly it's just been keeping it safe. Yeah, yeah, I don't don't think there's a whole lot of hope for what they can do that's going to be reasonable and economical to manage. Well, additionally, when, when these boats have been submerged for so long, uh, you know, there are enzymes in the wood which get dissolved and washed away. So once this wood comes out of the water, it doesn't take long, and it starts to, you know, basically break up into splinters. Uh, you know, case in point was the Alvin Clark, which was a beautiful, beautiful wreck. They pulled up off of uh, Death's Door Peninsula over in Wisconsin. Um, I think it was at about 100, 150 feet down. Still had the mast standing. Was uh, was found by a gentleman who was looking to, move, to you know recover a fisherman's fishing net out there. But uh, was brought in and used as a uh, tourist destination in Wisconsin for a couple of decades uh, as a mystery ship. It was actually in such good shape when they raised it. They actually. Put them put sails on it, and they sailed the thing around. Okay, it actually went from port to port, 
being sailed again. Yeah, this is the Elvin Clark. Hey, I can't make this stuff up, guys. Check out the story online. You can find it. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool tale, but it has a sad ending because they were not aware at the time of how these wrecks you know, would become so brittle once, once they dried out. And, you know, once it was thoroughly dried, it, it rapidly began to, to deteriorate. And even though this wreck had survived on the bottom there in Wisconsin for well over a century, within 20 years of pulling it out, it had degraded so bad they had to put it in a landfill. It was bulldozed and crushed uh, because it was just falling apart. Um, that's happened to many, you know, a number of these without people. People pull them up, don't realize what's all involved in trying to preserve these things. You know, we do have stuff over in Europe, uh, such as the Vasa and the Mary Rose, which are two European um, shipwrecks. I know the Mary Rose was uh, one of Henry VIII's ships, so it was uh, back in the 1500s when this boat went down. But when they brought the, bring these things up, they impregnate them with resin. They put them in a room where they're just constantly being misted with a solution that's mostly water and, and a little bit of polymer in it. And gradually they, they increase the polymer content to it. So pretty soon this entire wreck is encapsulated. It just, it's like you just shellac the entire thing very thoroughly. And that yeah. does preserve it quite well. But you're talking about some major, major, major bucks. In fact, the United Kingdom has announced that they will never, ever, ever undertake a project such as the Murray Rose again, just because it, it costs so much. Um, I haven't heard what, what Sweden's plans are with the Vasa. Um, you know, the Vasa is a magnificent vessel. Uh, I wouldn't go to Stockholm just to see it, but if I was there, I certainly would make it a pit stop. Uh, this yeah. was an extremely ornate warship, uh, extremely overbuilt, had too many decks on it, too many guns. And I guess it just kind of like fell over sailing out of the harbor and took a bunch of guys along with it. Kind of a sad story. Yeah. If, if, you want the tit- if you think the Titanic went early, it's nothing compared to the Vasa. Yeah, the Vasa didn't get out of port, you know, and uh, I shouldn't laugh because quite a few people went down with the ship, actually. But uh, this thing is just ornate, as ornate as they get. I mean, wood carvings and figures and, uh, you know, everything is gilt. It's a magnificent, magnificent shipwreck. Uh, end up sitting in the mud in the river for, uh, isn't that like a 14th century wreck? I think the Vasa is older than Mary yeah. Rosa, I want to yeah. say. But uh, yeah, it's... it's a very, very old wreck. and. You know, again, they had to bring it up and uh, mist it with water, replace it with resin, and uh, tremendous amount of money went into this thing here. It's a huge tourist destination now, but uh, you want to preserve these things, uh, you're biting off an awful lot to chew here because uh, that's you know you're looking at something several you know that's many tons, and really it's got to be quite unique in order to go through through the, the hassle of doing it, and sadly. You know, and I believe I'm the first guy to beat the drum to preserve these things and show them off and all that. But we see it so often where, you know, even complete ships are turned into museums, and then they really struggle. Uh, you know, I always encourage folks to, you know, check out your local museums and the different, you know, shipwreck museums we have here in, here in the Great Lakes. But uh, there are quite a few of them that are really having a hard time, you know. Uh, up north in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, we have the, um, oh, what is it, uh, the Valley Camp, uh, an old straight deck sh- uh, steamship uh, freighter, great museum. But when we were there, um, I doubt there were 20 people in the whole place. And you're talking a uh, just shy of 600-foot-long you know, freighter museum. Um, 
know, there's a couple of cool ones over there in Muskegon. You know, we have the, the the Silver Sides, which is the deadliest submarine that that exists in well, the, the deadliest American submarine that exists today. You know, it sunk a lot of you know more tonnage than anybody else. It's still floating. Um, you know, it's a great museum over there. You know, we have uh, one of the uh, Marquette car ferries up in uh, Manistee. You know, we have these things everywhere, but uh, unfortunately, they're just not visited enough. And it doesn't take long, and they're really struggling. You know, I know over in Muskegon, they also have a an LST, which uh, it's a huge military vessel designed to uh, you know bring tanks up into uh, shallow enough water so they could they could those open the bow up and the tanks drive out of the front of it there. Um, you know, kind of like the uh, waterborne version of a Hercules, you know. These things are, you know, <laughs> you know, designed for invasion. And there's a huge, very nice restored one there in um, in Muskegon. But again, they, they really struggle. So if you're yeah. in the area and you see these things, divers, check them out. It's cool stuff. I don't know how long they're going to be around, though. So Yeah, yeah some of the challenges these uh, maritime museums have is that they're occupying very valuable uh, lake and river frontage. So maybe at some point oh, yeah. in time that was a, it was a manufacturing site with a little bit of waste and, you know, so they take it and clean it up and start getting it. But I know if you talk about there in Muskegon, uh, some of those vessels like the uh, Milwaukee Clipper have uh, moved two or three times trying to, to find a home about every time they find a home. Uh, it's not too long and somebody's wanting it moved or, or repositioned. Yeah. Well, so, and that was like the, the biggest hurdle with the uh, Bobolo boats. You know, there are a couple of uh, turn-of-the-century steamships that used to service Bobolo Island over by Detroit. And, you know, trying to find places to dock these things. You know, you're talking about, you know, these boats, I think they're close to 200 feet long apiece. Mm-hmm. Trying to you know, find dockage for them. You know, uh, good luck. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Not your normal boat slip that they're sliding into. Yeah, yeah, well, and, you know, and we're seeing, like, you know, today, it's sad to say with, uh, you know, the change in the economy, how, um, you know, with, with the COVID, how now we're seeing so many other cruise liners are no longer with us and being scrapped out. Um, yeah. yeah, they're they're over capacity, and you don't, mm-hmm. you don't scrap the new ones, you scrap the old ones. And but, there used to be a secondary market for them. You know, they would go to a, another cruise line, but uh, these are just... Mm-hmm large enough where you know a smaller time operator can't necessarily afford to maintain them well and and even you know these ones that are being scrapped are not that old i know like the uh, norwegian ones they just scrapped off those were built in 2001 um then the uh the carnival the fantasy i believe built in 1996 um you know so really not that old for a ship particularly talking an iron hauled ship which we've got plenty of um examples of where those things can last 100 years or more but, uh, you know, and be, be, you know, a viable ship for, you know, half a century anyway, but because they're, you know, yeah, over capacity and times are changing, but it costs like a million dollars a year just to dock these things, you know, I mean, and, and that's not including having a crew to, uh, you know, <laughs> maintain it. So, yeah. Yeah. And some of that's operating costs, you know, what's, what's it take for fuel and energy and, and keep everything up, up current. So. Yeah, you know, they're 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 making some hard hard decisions, and I'm sure it comes down to uh, there's a financial you know, ability to write some of this stuff off. You know, that's to offset some some potential profits with some losses, and it's probably the time to do it. Yeah, 
Well, there's a oh. Facebook page, which is uh, publicly viewable, easy to find, but it's uh, ship breaking, and it's based on a oh a, a ship breaking yard over in Turkey. And you know, we're seeing anybody who's a member on that one. I know I think I added Eric to it a few different, but uh, it's really shocking to see these huge, massive, you know, thousand footers coming in there. You know, beautiful ships, nice lines, well-built, modern vessels and all that, and they're bringing these things in to be scrapped. And they're bringing, they're coming in under their own power. I mean, they're, they're completely viable yeah. running ships. And, 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 and they run them aground to cut them up. They, they, they will run it full bore. You can see it's just pouring the, the black smoke coming out of the diesel stacks as it's, as it's, they're racing towards the shore, and they beach them up on the shore, you know, at high speed. Well, fast they can get them anyway. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of video on YouTube about it. It's going to be something to watch, but it's really sad to see the times changing like this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, on the Vasa, that was, uh, its maiden voyage was on the 10th of August, 1628. Wow. And uh, it was said that there was between 30 to 150 on board. Hmm. Yeah, but the pictures you find on the Vasa, it's, it's a magnificent ship. I mean, every inch of that is has got ornate carvings on it, and must have been something really spectacular to behold in its splendor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Mary Rose was, you know, a very nice ship as well, but it wasn't as nearly detailed as the Vasa. Yeah, the the Vasa was it was really a, uh, you know, the kind of like an aircraft carrier of its day. It was really meant to display and be out front for mm-hmm. their navy and to flex the muscles that went into other ports. Yeah, but, uh, but that, even even the the architects for they know that it, the guys that built it said it has too many cannons on too high a decks, the uh, it's too too high center of gravity. It's going to go, and uh, away it went. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. On modern projects, I understand how that goes. There's you occasionally have somebody making a decision who doesn't want to listen to what it is and thinks that their will can overcome it. Sometimes yeah. that's what happens. Will's going to overcome physics. Good luck with that. Hope it works for you. Yeah. Then, then here's something up up in Alpena going on. New lake bed mapping tool to assist in collaboration efficiency. New technology will assist researchers, biologists, geologists, and many more to collaborate in a lake bed mapping for more efficient, saving both time and money for multiple agencies while providing a more detailed look at the underwater world. NOAA's National Centers for Coastal Ocean Sciences NCCS and Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary NB no the TBNMS recently completed the mapping prioritization study to help guide future lake bed mapping research and exploration efforts in the sanctuary waters of Lake Huron. The study gathered the most urgent mapping needs from 24 local experts in order to identify common mapping priorities and better understand the resources of the sanctuary. The news release explained. To take it and to be able to put in a digital tool that anybody can use, it really can increase our efficiency and our collaboration opportunities to go out and get this data collection done, which is important because we've only mapped a very small percentage of the Great Lakes. Uh, This data encompasses 4,300 square miles of Lake Huron off the northeast shore of Michigan. It is home to many culturally important shipwrecks, however, a large area of sanctuary remains unmapped, approximately 16,000 percent of lake bed within the sanctuary has been surveyed and much of what of the mapping was completed prior to 1950 when techniques were more primitive the release notes 
Gandula noted that only about 4% of the Great Lakes as a whole has been mapped, but 16% of the sanctuary waters have been mapped. So we're ahead of the curve, but as far as the Great Lakes, there's much that is not mapped to the latest technology. It's kind of an unknown, kind of like the ocean. It's the next frontier. There's a lot to discover out here yet and not just shipwrecks. The study called Priorities of Lake Bed Mapping and Lake Huron's Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary was authored by Gandula, Matthew S. Candle, Ken Baja, Charles Menza, and Bethany Williams. Kendall, marine biologist with NOAA, spoke on the phone Friday from Silver Springs, Maryland, where NOAA headquarters are located. This is a tool that we've used a bunch of different places now, and it's all about improving efficiency of mapping activities, Kendall said. So in the case of Thunder Bay Sanctuary, right, it's a huge area. It's a vast part of Lake Huron. They've only mapped about 16% of the bottom that has been mapped with good modern techniques. So it's a really huge area that they haven't taken a good look at from a mapping perspective. Updated lake maps are needed to better detect, characterize, and monitor submerged resources in ecologically important areas within the TBNMS. The release explains modern mapping technologies can not only locate new shipwreck sites, but also provide more accurate resolved depths and also characterize the substrate types of the lake bed. However, the sanctuary is vast. The entire area cannot be mapped in a short time. To identify the various mapping needs within the area, develop a national atlas to efficiently gather input in the mapping priorities from multiple stakeholders. Researchers invited a diverse array of respondents to participate in the effort, including archaeologists, biologists, coastal and fishery managers, and other groups. The common thread among all respondents was that they relied heavily on lake bed maps within the sanctuary as key input in their research or management decisions. Using the application, each respondent was given 200 virtual coins to place anywhere within the project area they felt was a priority for future mapping and convey the recommendations on the type of map that are needed, where the products are needed, and to justify what the site's priority for mapping. The system then standardized inputs using geographic information system framework enabling researchers to identify shared mapping interest. It makes it all it makes it so all these different researchers don't have to go it alone. They can now identify potential partnerships and really save a lot of money and get a lot more done. The results from the prioritization effort will be used by researchers and managers to identify collaboration opportunities and locations where interest overlap, improve efficiency of future mapping projects of sanctuary. This report prioritization were part of the larger NCCOS funded projects support the mapping of Lake Huron's Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary. And then they go on to talk about a webinar that's already passed. Uh, you know, I, I like this idea. Um, I, I'm just surprised they haven't mapped more of it already. They're saying 16%. I wonder if that 16% is only using the uh, techniques they're endorsing here, because I was sure they have side-scanned a great deal of that preserve already. I'm, I'd have to say so. And when you look at this map, I mean, that is a huge area. So they're, they're, I think a lot of what's been mapped is they take where there's an object that they know, and then somebody goes and maps it around it. So it, it's used for presentations and other decisions. And they even have some areas, I'm, I'm, let's see, with a screenshot of the Digital Atlas interface for prioritizing mapping area. So this may be the prioritization of what they want to scan. What I'd like to see is kind of like a, a public-private partnership where how about you enable people like us to have gear that could contribute to this? You know, if you could come up with a rig and a way of setting up the rig and reporting it, 
you could have a, you know, a bunch of boats with getting some solid data that you could add and paint this together. Yeah, but th- those rigs are some serious coin, and I kind of doubt they're going to entrust that kind of equipment to uh, self-taught or untrained users. I'm not sure if you've really, you know, how much you've done with a, you know, a professional quality side scan. But when you're dealing with pulling a towfish behind you that, uh, you know, maybe on 500 feet of cable or more, and, you know, some of these towfish have some serious weight to them, uh, it's very involved doing it. Plus, you've got to have a lot of skill to do it because, uh, you know, you need to have a very tight, concise pattern. You know, you don't want to trust that an area has been mapped up and been covered unless you know the people who were doing it had good technique um because you know, stuff can get missed you know i mean uh there's a i, I can tell you I, I used to think running a side scan was an easy deal but i've worked with some folks doing it and observed and been involved and it's something that takes several seasons just to be able to rudimentary use it i i purchased a, a professional quality one and i i have it i've had a chance to use it but um, it's a little daunting, you know, putting the, this stuff together because, you know, you also got to think that, you know, there's a, a sizable amount of gear risk here too. Um, you know, the towfish can get snagged on things. You have to maintain a very precise speed and be very much aware of how that tow, how far, how far the towfish is off the bottom. Because if you're too high, well, then you're going to miss targets. If you're too low, then you're not going to have enough overlap, you're going to miss targets, and you risk running into the thing in the bottom of the lake bed. And if you dive it in the bottom of the lake bed, there's a good chance you're going to wreck that towfish. And these towfish you know, start at five figures and go up from there. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's, you know, as far as letting the public have access to them, you know, it'd be great. Uh, additionally, though, but the cost and the risk involved, I don't see them doing that. Um you know, in the budget form too. I mean, when you're looking at buying one of these things nowadays, you know, even like your basic Marine Sonics, which is kind of at your your threshold, your, your beginning of professional quality units, you're still looking at I want to say over sixty thousand dollars for you know just the towfish, and the cables for these things are absurd too. I mean, uh, no, it's not sixty thousand. It's sixty thousand dollars for a complete unit, not just the towfish. But uh, you don't realize that cable there, uh, a 500-foot chunk of cable can be $5,000. And there's just so much money involved in this here, a lot of time, a lot of skill. And not many people want to do it because, you know, you're sitting there watching that screen and watching that screen and watching that screen. And, uh, you know, people want to do it, more power to them. You know, I've done it myself. Uh, But it's, it's tedious. I I, I still think there's a way of being able to augment the data because if you look at the way technology moves and a little bit investment and incentive, uh, you could bring it down. I mean, there's, there's computers that were a hundred thousand dollars that now you can do with, you know, your, your average watch, Apple watch is more powerful than what they used to be. So it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, You're just going to have to shake up some, economics a little bit and then you can do a lot with software i mean you're looking at analyzing and i'm looking at just collecting the data i mean if you had a specific way it gets set up and you certify it plus you know you, you wouldn't count on one person's data as being that data 
if you had eight people kind of doing this the same area and then you could kind of filter out the anomalies go well you know this guy didn't have what he was doing or you give them test locations you know hey before we're going to use any of your data you need to scan this known piece and if you don't come in at a certain percent accuracy then you know you're you're just not going to qualify for the program but uh yeah i i I see this a lot with uh you know especially with noah and a lot of these organizations is they get so high on the horse i mean you look at uh, at archaeologists and you know me and my five friends are the only ones allowed to go and do this and what are they going to live 60 70 years and what five projects do they do and we've got this huge area of land and underwater that are being ignored uh yeah, I, I I just think that you can't. It's a in a communal effort is going to get you much farther if you can manage the difficulties than you know just a few select agencies going it alone. Well, within the with within the dive community and the shipwreck hunting community, there's just it's very difficult to find any sense of cooperation for this sort of stuff because everyone kind of has their own different agenda for it. Everyone's got their own different budget for it. Uh, you know, it's everyone generally owns their own equipment, so it's their own risk. And you know, if you're running your own boat, your own gear, of course, you want to you're going to call the shots. It's very difficult to find any kind of you know. Everyone has the same goal, but as far as you know, sharing data is a lot of competition for oh, getting yeah. results. Because you know, it's by by getting results is is how you're able to do your fundraising and and get more more donations and grants to continue to to search. Um, you know, I, I used to think it'd be great if we get, you know, and, you know, and my buddy Jason, and I talk about this quite a bit. It'd be nice to be able to get, you know, this large cooperative effort so we can all say, Hey, I've, I've side scanned here and, you know, block that off. You block this off, but everyone looks at that as being proprietary data, because if you, you know, say you went out and you side scanned a, you know, a huge area off of South Haven, um, you know, you put a lot of money into that. You put a lot of weeks into that. You know, you, you earned that data and, you know, are you just going to give it away? Mm, probably not, you know, because, uh, you know, that that's, you know, it's a, it's a fair amount of coin. You know, you got to figure the, you know, the, the gas for the boat and the, you know, the purchase of the equipment and, you know, the maintenance for the boat and the time you took off from work for it to do it. Um, you know, and it, it, it's not like leisurely stuff out there. Everyone thinks when you're outside scanning, you're just kind of sitting there watching the chart. No, um, you know, driving that boat in such a precise course is tough stuff. You know, it takes a, you know, a real, a high degree of concentration to to mow the lawn. You know, we talk about mowing the lawn like you know, like we're out there just mowing the lawn. Well, no, because you know, if you miss a spot when you are mowing the lawn, you see you've got some grass sticking up over there, and you just just run the lawn over that. Not a big deal. But if you miss a spot with the side scan, well, you may not realize that. I mean, you might realize it when you're back looking at your at your, your at your, your your path later on, but you might not even realize it then unless you look at it very closely. And you know that little spot you missed might be where the wreck was, or you know it's. I'm telling you, there's a lot of skill that goes into this, and a lot of time. Um, you know, like I say, I I bought one, and I know from looking at it and and, and tinkering with it that it's going to take me probably a half a dozen trips out with it before I'm going to feel comfortable ruling out territory with it because uh, they are complicated. <laughs> and I, I yeah. bought the, I bought the, the biggest one that I could, I could actually run by myself. 
and uh, it would be a bear running by myself, but I could do it. Uh, I'll tell you though, it's it's not easy. Yeah. Well, but kind of going back to your point, your point of you know, everybody mapping their area and keeping that data to themselves is it's almost like finding these items is considered a race. So if I share where something isn't, then I'm letting somebody know that they shouldn't spend their time there and they go and look elsewhere. So it's, it's, it's kind of like this big game of let's make everybody else waste their time on something that's not there so that I'm the, the first one to find it. And, you know, I, I think, you know, how much stuff might have only been open for a little, little bit amount of time before sand went over that uh, mm-hmm. we've missed out on. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're not going to solve it here. Uh, eventually, I think that the, the way to go is we're going to see underwater autonomous ROVs and, you know, you're going to, you know, have eight or 10 of them and you, you know, you throw them in the water and you work off a, you know, a hundred miles section of coast and it's, it's mowing the lawn for you. And then you, when they pop up to the surface for recharge feeding and some data download, then you, you kind of collect that back, but you know, t- technology is catching up. And, and that kind of is happening, uh, not so much when it comes to looking for shipwrecks, but uh, when the uh, state police want to do a, a search for a body, um, they do have, you know, AUVs that, 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 that can do that. And they send it down, send it on a course, come pick it up a few hours later. And that's, you know, they're, they're very efficient at it. You know, but these things have also, I uh, want to say they're well into six figures. So oh, easily, uh, yeah. You know, bring, bring, bring your pocketbook. Um, my, my buddy Jason's got kind of a cool idea about how to do it. Uh, kind of a oh a home-built job, something that would make a popular mechanics guy drool. I'm not going to give away his secrets why he wants to do it there. Um, I think he's got an idea which could possibly work, as long as it didn't get interfered with. But uh, still, it's it's a fair amount of coin, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I've had people wanting to borrow, you know, my equipment, and I'm not I'm not doing it because you you run that thing into a into 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 something in the bottom and wreck it, and my whole you know my whole unit's destroyed. Then I mean I I'm not gonna be able to find another tow fish for you know for what I paid for the whole unit. Uh, you know this this stuff is um, it's hard to come by, and it's so expensive to fix that it's not something which you know a normal person can get done. This is stuff which you know corporations own this stuff. And, you know, they got big budgets. Um, I don't know. It's a, a lot of these, the, the replacement unit is, is almost the same price as just buying a whole new setup. Yeah, it is. Well, and then, speak- and then, you know, the, the, the technology changes quite a bit. So, you know, um, you know, if you buy something now, there's no guarantee that if it's, if it's 15 years old, you're gonna be able to buy, buy parts for it. It's like buying a car. Uh, well, yeah, Eric, Eric Olaf makes the point that even homemade would be expensive. Technology will get better, and we can buy used, and and you can. But there's a, a fair amount of competition to get used ones because you you know you have a lot of uh, you know educational institutions that are look, looking for used ones. You have a lot of shipper hunters looking for used ones, and there are a few of us out there. Um, you know, there's a lot of dreamers that buy one and never use one, which I'm kind of wondering if I'm that in that category now, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh, and, and, and the technology does get better. Actually what you see, what I'm watching, um, you know, people like uh, Dan Fountain, um, he's a shipwreck hunter up in the UP 
and he runs a hot rotted Garmin. He took a uh, Garmin side scan because it runs at a relatively low frequency and uh, put it on a towfish and went out hunting with it. And he's found some cool stuff with it. I mean, uh, unfortunately, he didn't announce it before Noah did, but, you know, he actually found, uh, oh, two wrecks, the Ohio and the Choctaw within a week of when Noah found them. And he, and Noah's, you know, using this great, big, huge, massive survey boat. I mean, I, I love Dan Fountain. He, he does these really cool presentations on, on his work there. And he's got a real understated sense of humor, you know, like, hey, you know, this is what they do on a million dollar budget. You know, this is what I do with my monthly check, you know, <laughs> and he's, and he's, and he's holding his own, but you know, uh, you know, it, it's tough to compete with the big guys. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're going to see quite a bit of that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we, we, I could, I could talk side scan and board you guys at tears all night long, but I won't go there. I probably don't enough. I'm surprised the chat room hasn't shrunk already here, so <laughs> nobody's bailed yeah. on me. So. Uh, the uh, then it, then this last item is some potentially cool scuba gear. I believe we we covered this one, which is the uh, what Genimo G E N E I N N O S two. It's a what they're call, classifying as an ultra portable underwater electric scooter, um, and it. What's different, I think when we were covering it before, it was probably a Kickstarter, and it's now available. You can go right online and off of Amazon. That weighs 2.67 kilograms, has a similar put, a footprint to a uh, laptop. Said the uh, it can fit into a large backpack or suitcase. It has a 97-watt-hour battery capacity lower than the, which puts it under the airline's 100-watt limit, uh, so yeah. you can... Yeah, just just kind of skate it through there. Uh, I said one of the main uh, features of it is how lightweight it is at just 2.67 kilograms. Um, And they talk about some of the features. Uh, And talk about the lifespan of it, which isn't which is okay. Uh, Because I this this is kind of like your your first scooter. You know, this is the thing that kind of tease you into it and to make you think you want one. Uh, I mean, I'd love to play around with it. Uh, when I looked at Amazon at the reviews for it, um, there were only two reviews, which for an Amazon product is not much. Mm-hmm. The The price was $3.99. When you look at the reviews, these are reviews that I would put under the category of mostly fake. Um, and if anybody's followed recently where they talked about the uh, brushing scheme that was happening with seeds, uh, which I'm not sure so so much sure that's what that that was, but the idea is is that you, you know, because Amazon puts that little tag when you review something, you know, verified purchaser. So what they do is there's a little behind the scenes thing where uh, they go and purchase it on your behalf to ship it to you to review it, and then you return it. So you get put as a verified purchaser, but you didn't actually purchase it. And then the condition is that you have to put something positive. So you get something in return, a little bit of payola there. And that's what these reviews sounded like. They did not sound like if I legitimately used it, those are not the type of reviews. So considering that's been in the store since February and we're to this point in time, I'm, I'm kind of calling BS on it. And uh, I'm not sure why it hasn't sold more. Yeah. At 399, that's a attractive price. Is it everybody's a little too, uh, 
chicken to try it out or or not. But um, I mean, I am. I'm certainly not going to buy one and unless I can hold one in my hand and try it out. So, well, what, or I see, see a the, bunch of reviews that saying it's great. Well, let's see what the specs are on this because I know, like, you know, Wolf's has some down there which are uh, are they are they Yamaha powered? What are the ones that Wolf's they have down there? Oh, I I can't remember. I mean, they are they Yamaha? Are they Sea-Doo? But they're, you know, I think the most expensive one they have is four hundred bucks, and that's a real nice one. So, you know, that the price they're asking for this is getting you well into, you know, the uh, the amateur underwater scooter. Now, this is not something. This is not something that you know Trotter's going to use. Um, that you know, Trotter's guys are not going to use this at you know three hundred feet down there. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to see Jill Heinerth going to a cave with one. Yeah, you're not going to see that there. So this is you know this is totally amateur level here of a scooter here. But what I'm seeing at Wolf's, like I think their top of the line one is under four hundred bucks, under four hundred dollars still. And though the one that they're using there at Wolf's is still rated for I think like over a hundred feet anyway. I'm trying to see what the specs are on this guy here. Yeah, there's there's yeah. a Yamaha one on Amazon and that's sixteen hundred. Uh you're seeing a lot of units that look very similar, almost like knockoffs of a knockoff. And they're in the five to six hundred dollar range. There's one up there, the SIBO, which I think we've covered before. That one's uh nine five. The Oswo Sea Scooter, that one's a four hundred similar to this one. So it's, well, it's kind, kind of, of like a go ahead. It's kind of decent depth rating. It's rated for a hundred feet, so you know, that's most of what you're gonna use for recreational diving. Yeah, I, I I put this in the category of kind of like those uh you know before everybody had some decent dive housing and GoPros, it used to be you were going to buy, uh, you know, the, the dive shops camera, you know, so you paid $180 cause you want to document your, your underwater trip. And then, you know, Hey, you want a scooter so you can go around a little bit quicker. So the, these I put as uh newbie products that somebody who's mm-hmm. new into it, who's heard that this would be something great to have, uh, you know, that's at their market. And, yeah, and then, yeah, Karen tells us the ones at Wolves are, are Yamaha. So, yeah. you know, at least Yamaha has been around for a while. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know, I know they're making, making scooters, but when I look at this, I know I'm going to break it. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, my my buddy Jason was going to loan me his scooter from his his scooter that I he got at Subaquatic Sports, and just handing it to me, it's missing pieces. Like. Did I drop it or did it come to me missing pieces? You know, I know I'm going to break it. You know what? So where am I going to get this thing fixed? You know, next week when I break it, you know, uh, this, this you're not, this, I I doubt you're going to have a a supply of spare parts and that like anything with Amazon. The first thing I always do is look at your reviews. I look at the good reviews and the bad reviews. And this one had almost no reviews. They Mm -hmm. had two ratings and they're both five star. And you could tell when a five star rating isn't really a, a genuine one. And, Right, right. I'm calling, yeah. I'm calling BS on these. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, you know, and if we're going to talk about you know BS products later on, I want to talk about, about about the Squircle, which we've talked about on here already. But I want to go back on the Squircle and rip them some more. So, okay. Well, I I think we're done with scuba news. So let's let's hear about the Squircle story. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I I know we talked about this product on here. It's, it's, it pops up in different formats. The current format is the is the squircle, but basically it is the the high pressure 
portable spare air that, hey, you why be a scuba diver? You can buy this kit and go dive like a scuba diver and even have video with people down there, you know, with scuba divers and things, you know, which is obviously photoshopped. Or the scuba divers are just waiting around to, to get an idea of where we're looking for the body when they're done, you know. But, uh, you know, this is a product which has been just, you know, taken Facebook by storm. And I take every opportunity to go on there and rip on it. And I encourage anybody who is a, is a certified diver who, who understands how this stuff works, look at this thing and you're going to find like 16 different ways in 30 seconds as why this thing shouldn't be available to the public, why it's going to kill you, why it's probably a scam. And, you know, it's just, when you talk about the, these bogus reviews and everyone's in there saying, oh yeah, I love it. I bought one of these, you know, like, no, you didn't buy it because if you did, you'd be dead. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just... And, but it's just going crazy over Facebook. And yeah, it's like 30 bucks, you know, it's basically death in a bottle. That's what I've been calling it. And actually death in a bottle is catching on now too. But uh, it's, it's bad news. You know, I mean, uh, how much air are you going to put in what looks to be like a three cubic foot tank with a glorified bicycle pump? Okay. You know, I'm yeah. good luck with that. Yeah. But and Amazon has the Smako and there are hundreds of them out there. S-M-A-C-O, and it's the same thing. It's a spare air with a bicycle pump. Uh, yeah, and, and they always, like, a high-pressure air pump with 5 to 12 minutes of scuba tank air-free refill adapter. For who? Who Who can, I mean, how, how many, let me see, I'm going to see, let me see if they, they're not, they're probably not going to tell me the volume. Yeah. It, well, it can't be, a, it can't be and, more than a, you know, three, and, and and how do you know that you've got that much air in there? Is is there a submersible pressure gauge along the side so you can do some dive planning so you know what your turn pressure is? No. You know you're 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 out of air because I got no air. Wow. And I've never been trained to how to do a CISA. I don't know about going to the surface and exhaling all the way except because I saw it in the movies, you know. I mean, this thing is just so stupid. And yeah, I, I thank you, Dave, for pointing out here. Uh, Dave Mayberry is mentioning that he talked to a dive shop owner, and he said that those cylinders are not DOT certified. People have been bringing those those squircle uh, cylinders into dive shops to get filled, and they nope, they're not filling those things. And uh, oh, wow, Derek is talking about conversion rate. Oh, I think Derek is talking about the uh, the scooters actually being a thousand dollars. But yeah, Dave, you're right. Um, the, the Looking like Popeye pumping these things, people are complaining about some of the things I've seen is like, you know, you spend 30 minutes pumping for a five minute dive, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, if, if you're listening to this program and you're not a certified scuba diver yet, this is not your, your bridge in. You're much better off doing a regular snorkel or getting your certification because it, it's really economical, to, even if you're renting all your gear to go out there and get a dive in. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're going to try and convince you that, oh, well, don't pay them money. Go and get this thing, and then you know, just use the bicycle pump. There's, there's it's a, just not practical. There's a reason why, you know, we spend, you know, several thousand dollars between getting certified and buying our gear. I mean, if you want to start from scratch being a diver, you know, you walk into a dive shop and with your, your uh, Discover card and say, make me a diver, you know, you, you may be dropping down $5,000 for that, okay? Um, a lot of us do it on, on the cheap and buy some used gear here and there, which, which is nothing wrong with that, as long as it's good, safe, solid gear. But uh, 
you know, you still got to buy a lot of the stuff new. And you're looking at, at some serious coin here. Um, but there's a reason why. It's because it's life support equipment. You know, we are going down there into a hostile environment. You know, say what you want about evolution and biology. We are not designed to be down there. And it takes you know, quite a bit of uh, assistance. And assistance is not just mechanical equipment. It's knowledge, too. Because scuba diving is actually quite simple. We all know how easy it is. Uh, you know, the average Joe, you put your kit down in front of them, and within 10 minutes, they can probably figure out how it works, you know? I mean, you know, you, 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 you turn on the you turn the valve on, you, you put the regulator in your mouth, and put the thing on your back, and you just might live, you know? But, you know, diving certification is not teaching you how to dive. It's teaching you how to deal with the stuff that goes bad when you're down there. And when you're taking this, using the squircle, and... You come into some cold water, you have a free flow on you. Well, what are you going to do? You know, we know how to handle that because we're trained. We're trained divers. We know well, you, about. You just, you just send a nasty email to the scorical people. Yeah, for, from your from your grave. You know, I mean, if you don't know how to handle a free flow situation, uh, you got no business to play with the scorical. I, I don't think there's a certification. That, I don't think there's an agency that trains you how to. Use it, one of those, those uh, you know, underwater breathing tube things, you know. I mean, it's, it's and anyone who had the skills to use that thing safely, it's not going to waste their time with that, with those toys. <laughs> I mean, you're going to put a real scuba, scuba tank on your back where you can get some real serious bottom time and have, you know, an octo in case your, 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 sec, your uh, you know, your second stage goes bad on you or free flows or whatever. Uh, you're going to have, backup equipment, redundancy, training. You're going to know what, what to do in an out-of-air situation. You're going to know how to avoid being in an out-of-air situation. You're going to know how to avoid going to decompression. All these things we learned by being certified divers, none of which uh, is going to come in the owner's manual for a squircle, yeah. you know. It, yeah. It's just, yeah. I encourage the, the, you folks, when you see those things on Facebook, get on there and rip them, you know, laugh at them, you know. I mean, it's just... Yeah. Yeah, the the thing with the with all these scams is there's always an element of truth, and spare air came out of having some, they they wanted to have something so that a pilot, you know, you're in a helicopter, it flips upside down in the water. Could you get a couple breaths to get out into the surface? It was it was more for a little bit of confidence, uh, yeah, because you, you really don't have to have one. I mean, if you're if you survive the crash and you can get out of the the helicopter, you know, swim to the light, go up. Uh, but the the fact that they had them so they get a couple pups of air out uh, just gave them a little bit more confidence. So that that's where they, the spare air originated from. Uh, but it's from a legitimate piece of dive gear for any diver. Uh, you want a pony tank, you know, and that's going to depend on your size and your condition and what you're you're hoping to do. What do you, what is it supposed to be saving you from? And for most of us divers, you know, we're yeah, and the minimum we're usually diving a sixty or an eighty cubic foot. So you want something that if that tank becomes unavailable to supply you air, you have another bailout or another tank that can that can get you safely to the surface. And uh this coracle or or even a legitimate spare air is most likely not that item for you. Yeah, they say a spare air is better than no air. You know, some people believe that uh gives folks a a false sense of security. Um, you know, there's a lot of different opinions on it there. You know, you know, personally, I wouldn't use one because if I'm in a situation where I believe I need a bailout 
a, a spare air is not going to be sufficient for me. I'm going to need a real bailout, so I'm taking my 30 with me along, or my 40 for, for a yeah. bailout. Um, yeah. That's me. You know, it, it may work for some people. It doesn't work for me. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and, uh, if you're, and if you're going to... If you're going to use up the real estate on your body, it should be enough air to be useful. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't find that much of a difference. And you know, I'm a fairly big guy, so you know, a little five or seven cubic foot tank compared to a a thirty is is not that difference. You still have to have the regulators and have something to breathe off of. Well, and if if you're going by your training, then you should never. I mean, a good diver is never going to run out of air. Because they're going to do proper proper um, dive planning, and even if you have a free flow, you have time. Okay, I mean you can breathe on that bubble. That's what you're taught to do when you get your certification there. Uh, there's a there's some videos on YouTube which we talked about on the show, oh probably two years ago, showing how long it takes for a tank to go empty if if you were to you know. Um, blow your burst disc if you were to uh, have a free flow on your first stage, on your second stage. And it's surprising. It, it takes several minutes. And you think about it, okay, even if you're down there at 130 feet, okay, and you, uh, you know, blow your line for your first stage, because there is a uh, uh, restrictor disc in there, uh, you still have several minutes. That's on a full tank, of course. If you're, you know, down to 1,000 or 500 PSI, you're not going to have a lot of time, of course. Um, you know, but we are all trained how to how to do a CISA. You know, that's part of your, your dive certification there. Um, you know, we have technique to deal with that. So, you know, hey, when you're doing your dives, look at I, I look at every um, safety stop as an opportunity to practice drills. You know, when you're sitting there doing your safety stop, hey, do do a mask clearing. You know, uh, you know, get good enough so that you can take off your mask. That's been one of my weaknesses is I hated taking off my mask because I wore contacts. And uh, I got beyond that now. So, uh, you know, you should be able to take off your mask and put it back on during, during your safety stop without, you know, freaking out about it there. Uh, I've seen really good, experienced divers lose it from having their mask get knocked off. Um, you know, uh, do, do a reg swap with your buddy. You know, have you ever breathed on your octo underwater? You know, um, most of us have breathed on it on the surface, make sure it works. But, you know, your octo is... And Mac has mentioned this a few times. Generally, when you're buying your rig, your octo is a lower quality regulator than your primary first stage, than your primary second stage, the one that you generally breathe on. And I've had it where, crap, my I started to have a free flow, so I went to my octo, and the octo being a piece of crap, free flowed on me instantly, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, because... Uh, you know, so try your octo out at depth. If you're doing cold water diving, try it out. You know, when you're down there and your tank is still full, you know, because actually that's where you're more likely to have your free flow is when your tank has higher pressure in it there. That's when you have more expansion going on. Um, you know, when you get down the line, try out, you know, go go to your octo. Try it out. How does it breathe? Are, are you okay with this emergency situation here? You know, um, do your drills. You know, the drills you're taught. You know, it's, it wouldn't be a bad idea to uh, do a ditch and recovery on your rig if you're, like, in a shallow area. I wouldn't recommend it 90 feet, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, um, yeah, if you're at 15 feet, and uh, probably not a bad idea to, to practice it once in a while, you know. So. Yep. All good points. Scuba diving is a very safe sport when done properly. 
it's the Cowboys who go out and break the rules or the ones getting hurt, but they give us a bad reputation there. I mean, Mac has the specs for it. I kind of I wish he was here. Hope Mac's doing all right. So, yeah, he, he's, you know. he's doing fine. He's just had something else going on. Okay. Because Mac's got the specs on it. You know, he'll tell you, you know, uh, accidents per, you know, thousand hours involved in a sport, you know, and scuba diving is, is, is down there. You know, it's uh, it ranks lower than skiing. Um, you know, I, I tell my friends that, uh, you know, scuba diving is less dangerous than riding a motorcycle. Of course, Ted will kick, kick my butt for that, you know, but is what it is. So. <laughs> yeah. So how about some diving? Did anybody get any diving in the last week? I see you were up north for a little bit. Yeah. Um, we got a few in. Um, you know, we, we kind of had a hard time up there, actually. We were up to the Straits for a few nights, and uh, it was more a matter of staying on Mackinac Island for a while. We kind of hooked on that place. Yeah. So, well, Mackinac Island's a great place. I haven't, I haven't, I don't think, I'm trying to remember the last time I was actually on Mackinac Island. I've been to Sheboygan quite a few times, but mm-hmm. not a Mackinac Island in, in quite a while. And I think I'm due. Uh, I I had secretly thought I was going to make it up this year, but not looking that way this this time. I know we we got the boat set up now for doing overnights on it. I've got a 22 foot whaler, which is nothing real fancy, guys. I bought this thing off of Craigslist for not a lot of money here. I'm not going to say how cheap it is because you, you guys would think it was a doghouse, you know. <clears throat> but uh, you know, I you know we, we got a bed in it, and you know we have it set up for uh, overnighting. And we took a Mackinac Island for, for four nights and had a, had a good time up there and enjoyed the place. And I'll tell you, if you ever get the chance to spend the night out there, it's a whole different environment once the last boat leaves. Because now you have the overnight people and it's a lot quieter. You still got a few rowdies up there, but it's a whole different deal out there. And some of my greatest memories there are you know at night 10 o'clock every night they pay they play taps from the fort they also on the weekends um they'll actually have someone with with bagpipes it's not recording either (coughs) excuse me on the weekends it's a it's a on the weekday nights it's a recording but on the weekends they have some up there you know with the bugle doing taps and they also have a you know, after that, they also went playing bagpipes. And it's just, I don't know, it's a whole different place up there if you, if you hang out overnight. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of hooked on doing that. We did get a few dives in. Um, and we plan on diving quite a bit. We went, went up there with uh, eight scuba tanks. Um, yeah, we only used two scuba tanks <laughs> the whole time up there. Cause... Two? That doesn't sound yeah. possible. I used two uh, just checking my regulator, huh? No, we got we got fogged in. Um, uh, tremendous amount of fog out there, and there's a lot of freighters, you know. And it's just, uh, you know, when you got visibility of seriously like 20 foot, you don't want to be running your boat out there all the freighters, you know, and the ferries and things. So, uh, you know, we had one day we were fogged in. Another day was, you know, between fog and then later on, it briefly had decent weather. Then it got too windy and all that, and it just uh, we didn't get it done. We wanted to get it done up there, unfortunately. So. Um, been diving with the mud club we you know been doing the tankful tuesdays yeah tankful um, tuesdays look like they've been doing good many of the last uh, ones have... yeah i know like the one last time i was at we had 17 dive well 17 people that we had we had wow i think we had 
13 in the water and four for surface support. Uh, and people have been finding good stuff. Really good it's stuff. It's amazing what people have been finding this uh, yeah. this last Saturday. Mac and I, and we probably had, uh, gosh, Larry, Sir Larry, uh, Mary Beth, um, and the uh, new divers. And I, I keep forgetting their names. Uh, but I'll, I'll post in the chat some photos of them. But uh, uh, Mac, was it Mac who found it? Coming at the boat ramp, Marmot, he reached down, picked up, and it was a pristine milk bottle. Hmm. You know, here, here's a location that is a thousand by the club and um, um, million times they're fishing. I mean, there's people waiting and there were a milk right there. Wasn't a real thing. You know, it wasn't, didn't have any heavy embossed, but it was a milk bottle. So, you know, this is something that's been water 50 years. Hmm. So th- there's, there's a lot to find. I mean, that the bottom turning over and, and so they did a drive, uh, on Saturday, uh, started uh, uh, north of the hop, uh, uh, not north, south of the potting hops, but all upstream, and then they drift down past the, the train uh, bridge, and they said that that ev- that every bridge they went through looked completely different than the last time they dove it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry found a was probably a ten foot long rake that would have been used to rake the coal boxes from a steam engine. And he said All there right. are two more. There are two more down there. Hmm. So, yeah. Um, well, and then I know when I was out there two weeks ago, Mac, Mac found your old dive flag. I guess you left a dive flag out there. <laughs> and so, yeah, Mac, yeah, the, the, yeah. You, you weren't on the show where I, I talked about the dive flag, but what what had happened is uh, the week before I had I had dove out there, and it was one of those things where you know I had the dive flag and the spool in one hand, and I. I reached down and I had it wrapped. I had a, on the dive flag, I, I don't clip it off to me, but I did have a river stick on it. And I had the river stick kind of just loosely wrapped around my arm. So as I grabbed the bottle to put it in my catch bag, I must have like uncoiled it or, or something. And it had, it happened within like four seconds time. I, I had the flag and then I didn't. And then as soon as I didn't have the flag, I decided, uh, you know, I'm I'm out in the river, even though there aren't any boats, I don't want to be diving without a flag and a boat. So I I I went across the river up because uh, I was I was convinced it had gone downstream. <laughs> so I got across the river, popped up, and it was almost exactly where I was. So I think I, I was over in the uh, uh the trees, so I think it had snagged on something. So I thought, well, I'll go back and get it. I had about a, a thousand pounds of air. So I went upstream about the same amount I drifted down went across, but this time I got in a part of the river where the current was really strong. And when I popped up, I only had about 550 pounds of air and I was too far downstream to be able to work my way up to where the flag was. So I just went across and got out. So yeah, Mac picked that up for me. And then yeah, when no, he came no. sat- Saturday, he didn't bring it. So I give him some grief for that. So I've, uh, he, he's got it. I, I bought a new flag for it because it was starting to get a little faded. It, it was kind of a rose pink on uh dirty beige background. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it looked more like a surrender flag than a dive flag. Yeah. But when we saw it, we looked, I saw it there and 
I was thinking when I've been there for a while, and I'm thinking like, is there a diver on the other end of that somewhere down there or what? You know? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that was my other concern because I felt I felt bad for leaving it out there because it, you know, anybody who knew what it was would would be a little, you know, is there a corpse attached to the flag? <laughs> but probably not. Cause that water's warm. The corpse would be floating by now, so probably not. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Know, I, the- I, did just, I did do some recovery after my own gear too. I've I've missed a few podcasts because I've just been too busy with other you know dives and things and getting prepped or stuff. But um, Amy and I went up to Reeds Lake to dive the uh, Reeds Lake wreck two weeks ago. And uh, visibility was just horrible. I mean, I trying to find a good visibility out there, but it was just, you know, it was not even a foot visibility. So we got down there and said enough of that and came back up. Um, went to Gull Lake to uh, check out on targets out there and uh, just did side scanning and bouncing targets out of Gull Lake. And I dropped my reel. And, oh. and and it's not like a super fancy cave reel, but it, it's a decent dive, right? And I've got, it's like a 500 feet of line on it there. I, I like it, you know? And I was getting in the boat and Amy said, I was passing my gear to Amy and she's like, did you just, just drop your reels? I just saw something orange go that way. Crap. You know? <laughs> so I, I went through a tank and a half of air to get that reel back. <laughs> I went down because, you know, I didn't want to just drop down. I went down the anchor, thought I'd double back and missed it. Then I did a drop down and missed it. And, uh, you know, although Amy, um, how was it? Amy did have the force at one point to toss over a, a, uh, one of our, our marker floats. And I dropped down the line with the marker float, knowing the boat probably had still drifted on the anchor a little bit. But sure enough, there it was. So, yeah. Took me three bounces to get back, back my, <laughs> my reel. So. Yeah, I got th- I got three dives out of it, right? So, <laughs> did, did my, in the chat room, did my did my photo come through on the finds? I put it in and actually, I don't know. The, 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 we, looks like our chat rooms are having their own thing going on. They're talking about recovering a cell phone. And... Yeah, uh, if if you look, well, I I've re-uploaded the phone, so that should come up. But Mac found four cell phones on Saturday. Hmm. Well, cell phones have become a problem in the river. It'd be interesting to see what kind of uh, contamination those batteries cause over time. Because you know, it's like we find more talk ways of stuff in the water. Yeah. I mean, uh, those lithium-ion batteries, they don't want them on the airplanes. They're probably not good in the water either. So uh, there was that. And I'm just trying to some of the finds. Or anything Settle on the Saturday, but it wasn't. Too bad. But we did have, uh, you know, uh, a, a new younger diver grandfather were diving. So it's nice to see them. And like I said, we had Larry and you know, yeah, yeah. We've Matt. had some, we've we've had some new divers join us on the the Tankful Tuesday dives as well. We had uh, some new gal Ashley came out. Um, this was for dive number five for her pretty new at diving at all and she came out and dove, dove in the river she had she had some assistance so i think uh jim and mac took turns kind of keeping an eye on her while, while she was out there um we had a father and daughter team out there as well came out one night um but we have been really fine we've been finding some really cool stuff you know um you know karen and uh eric have been cleaning up in fact i might come out there just to do like surface support just so i can kind of watch where they're going out there 
Because, I mean, I, 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 the stuff I'm seeing them bring up every time, yeah. Karen and on uh, Eric each have a really nice patent liquor, um, patent uh, medicine bottle, big big liquor bottle. And it, it's not the same one they got last week, so it's not that they're seeding the fines and all that. <laughs> they, they got, they're bringing out some cool stuff, you know. Uh, my Amy saw some cool stuff, too. She did find a really nice uh, poison bottle on the side. Um, yeah. Well, the, the dive I had the week before, uh, uh, other than I, I spent way too much time getting in the water and then moving between the shores. But what little time I had actually hunting, I was finding tons of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, the the funny thing is, I think a lot of times, because you can tell when it, when you're you're picking over something that Max picked over, because he stacks yep. them up a particular way. But mm-hmm. the thing is, his eyesight's so bad, I'll pick on him since he's not here, that he leaves the good stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> well, so I'll, I'll grab one or two of the good stuff, bring it up, and I'll look at that and go, oh, where'd you find that? And I said, in your pile. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, but there, there, there's, a, it's, it's just amazing how that stuff recirculates. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the river was such a no thought dump for so long. Plus, you know, if you had a house in the river and you just might dump it down the back hill and it would, you know, it gets there. And when the river changes course a little bit and erodes away, then you're exposing some new, cause it milk bottles they've, they've talked about in their, their to Marmot, uh, ramp that they've pulled a couple hundred milk bottles out of there all in good condition. And just, all right. it seems unfathomable that you could, you could do that. And, uh, you know, I, I pulled out a nice, uh, inkwell that was embossed. Yeah. Medicine bottles. I mean, Coke bottles like crazy. And these are mm-hmm. Coke. If you like local items, they have a Coke bottle that says St. Joe on the bottom, you know, the, the, the name of the bottling company easily, readable by anybody i mean it's just it's just it's a collectible it's something that you just if you're into bottles at all that you'd like to have mm-hmm. but, so yeah uh, but some, if, some well we're finding so much stuff you kind of got us are censoring it a bit because you know we're down there and uh you know you, you find a lot of stuff and you gotta think okay what do i want to bring home and clean up <laughs> because yeah. what, what you well, what you pull out of there you know, it's pretty nasty usually. You know, it, it's stinky. It's got, you know, dead snails in it and all kinds of gunk and grime on it. And yeah. do you want to go with the cleaning this thing up? And uh, yeah. well, don't, uh, go ahead. There, there's a lot of times where, I, you know, I'd like to, I like half of what I bring up I'm going to throw away. Because the way I look at it is I'm, as I'm cleaning up the bottom, plus I don't have to pick through it again. If I leave it out, I'm destined to go uh, come across it 20, 20 dives. So if I pull it out and throw it away, then it's it's not going to be there. And this last time I noticed on the, on the bottom was how much broken glass there was. Yes. Shards and shards and shards. Yep. And I don't remember it that much. I mean, I was in the, the gravel bottom. Uh, you know, the, the river stick, I, I have a nice pickaxe I like to use as a river stick. And the bottom is so packed in some of the spots of this uh, of the river that I've had to go to using the... Uh, the screwdriver model of river stick seems to be better. It can, it can dig into the bottom and you get a little bit better purchase. Uh, but there, there's just tons of stuff down there. And the visibility is such that if, if you stand at the shore, you can see somebody who's eight or 10 feet underwater without a problem. I mean, mm-hmm. the visibility yeah. has just been amazing. I don't think I've seen visibility like this. And I'm, I'm kind of curious, is it the, the lack of rain and we're not in a drought by any reason, or is it that everybody's been locked home because of the 
coronavirus, and we've just not been polluting the water. Um, I don't know, but I'm you know with, with the visibility being so great, I'm seeing so many more fish than usual. I mean, we used to be you'd see a a couple of bass out there here and there, but it's like now, especially if you get on the far side, bass are stalking you out there, and they're they're big oh, enough yes. to, be, to be a little daunting. I mean, I I've got you know a, a pickaxe as well. And the handle on it is about, I want to say, oh, about 16 inches long. Yeah. And I was comparing it to the biggest bass out there. And the biggest bass out there was nearly as long as the handle of my pickaxe. And yeah. there were a number of them that were runner, that were, that were you know, <laughs> honorable mention too. They were, I mean, yeah. and they, 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 they're following us big time out there at school. Well, they, they, they've learned that we uh, stir stuff up. And there'll be that crawdad that goes away from you, doesn't get away from them. Yeah, they're all uh, over that. Clams, a lot of clams in the bottom. And that's a good sign that the river is doing well when you see that many clams. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the river diving has been great. I mean, we've had quite a few divers and I know Eric's been cleaning up. I mean, Karen's been cleaning up and uh, I know Eric's been diving a bunch too. I've been watching his progress over there with the uh, Wednesday night dives. Uh, it's been entertaining to watch stuff they had. They had quite the fiasco one night over there at uh, Blue Lake, which I won't get into that. But, uh, <laughs> they've had, you know, but a lot of good night diving going on. I mean, they've, I think they've had some actual some night dives going on. But yeah. uh, Well, you know, river dives in August is unusual. We're usually out in the big lake uh, or we're on some inland lake because usually boat traffic is, is so much. There was just a little bit of both traffic. Uh, there was some kayak traffic on the rivers. But some some good time to get out there. And the water temperatures were fairly reasonable. Um, you know, th- some people are wearing what we call rash suit, you know, just a three mil or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were fine. Uh, Mac was and Larry were, I think, were diving fives or, or worn out sevens. And they were comfortable all the way to the end. And, and Mac Mac had to have over a two and a half hour dive. He, he emptied one tank and then that, uh, uh, Wonderland Cinema. I I gave him my 100 because I was doing shore support, so he dove that. So yeah, we're we're, we're having some good dives. Mm-hmm. Karen's in the chat room is saying anybody want to river dive tomorrow evening? I don't have any tanks right now. Mine, I have one going out for Viz, uh, and the other for a hydro. Uh, hopefully, I can pick up the Viz sometime tomorrow. But mm-hmm. I was supposed to get it today, and it didn't quite happen. Yeah, and we've been doing our our after dive decompression dinner at right next door there's a pizza joint it's almost the same parking lot as the uh, river dive there and it's been oh you know, uh, how, how's that place been i've never been in there I, that used to be a uh welding gas location huh okay well maybe that's what they're cook, cook, cooking the pizza with I, i've never had yeah. a well, never, but what what does an acetylene pizza taste like you know yeah yeah <laughs> you know but, pine- uh, does pineapple go with acetylene <laughs> I, I haven't noticed there, but now I'm gonna, I'll be checking for it now. But uh, yeah, it's uh, Front Street Pizza. It's it's a little bit different. They kind of do a little out about cashing you out and things. You definitely want to sit outside because it gets kind of loud inside. But the food's not bad. They got awesome wings. Um, service sometimes is great. Sometimes it's crappy. You know, some sometimes mm-hmm. you get get good tips. Sometimes I get crappy tips. All depends on the service and all. But uh, yeah, I don't. I, I missed the good enough. The the good enough was my favorite place, but you know in the in the COVID days, you know going any place really enclosed or far away hasn't happened. Yeah, I, we we tried the good enough a few times. I've 
I've had problems with, with the good enough where uh, you get out there and the way they have the seating set up in there, you just can't get a table. You know, I mean, you'll you walk oh. in there and there's like there's like ten people in there, but that's got the place filled up because of where the seating is. So uh, yeah, post COVID, I haven't been in there. Uh, okay, so uh, do, you, do you have a any stories or anything you want to cover before we get on out of here? No, I mean, are, are we doing plugs right now or uh... yeah? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, we can, well, we can work our way into plugs. If you got something you want to plug, go ahead. Yeah. I don't really don't have any, any stories at this point here. I've kind of given you guys enough stories as it is already. So I'll, I'll leave it alone here. Been rattling on a lot tonight. Okay. Well, if you're enjoying the program, we certainly would appreciate your support. Uh, head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, click on over to our Patreon link. Uh, we understand with this covid times that you you may be in a situation where you might not have the money so if you can't do that if you could give us some five star reviews on whatever platform you happen to enjoy that would certainly help us out uh, yes please uh, do look us yep. up lie for us so you enjoyed the program yeah and, and then even drop us a line if you have some feedback the show at scubaobsessed.com you know, anything just as simple as, you know, where you listen to the program, what you'd like to have us talk about, anything you'd like to see changed or some input, hey, we certainly would value that. Hey, isn't that the same address for the hate mail, too, though? Don't we want to, like, yes. maybe we ought to, like, so you have, like, a black hole email for the, for the well, hate mail? Maybe. It's all in there because I, I, I tend to miss that. So if you've sent us an email and you don't hear in a couple of days, then then try again. Uh, don't don't encourage the hate mail we get enough of that as it is i i get yeah. it yeah well that's it's good I, th- I think i probably forward it to you uh i don't i got i got i got kind of rowdy a while back and <laughs> i was drinking and i was kind of pissed at my work you know and i was that crusty curmudgeon on the program you know i heard about that you know like man i won't do that again ouch yep. it's kind of sitting crooked only on one butt cheek for a while after that one so yeah yeah people like to chew on something mm-hmm yeah, I got on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed, uh, you can follow us at there. Um, so facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. And then I keep working on my YouTube project, but, uh, you know, home, home projects have, have pulled that a little bit away, but I'm, I'm going to get there. I've got some good ideas. I'm working on some technical okay. solutions. Uh, a lot of it is bandwidth dependent. It's, it's, it's a shame of, how dependent we are on being connected. And even mm-hmm. so, if you want to stream yeah, but, something, but you know, the, the discord platform is really improving. I, you know, there was a while when we first started using it that I was thinking this was a mistake because we were having such a hard time getting on and, and the updates are an issue, but you know, as long as you plan for it and, you know, sign on early enough to get the updates done, it's okay. But, you know, now that we're getting the, the platform a little more stabilized, we are getting back into having a, you know, bring, bring guests on. Um, we didn't really want to have John chattered and standing and waiting in the wings for us to figure out how to get, how to get him into discord, you know, or figure out the latest updates. But um, we do have some guests lined up here. So uh, we're working on, you know, the goal is to have a guest that, like every other program. Uh, and we've got quite a few folks that, that have mentioned they want, they want to be on board here. So, uh, you know, so we're going to have uh, Brendan Baylot on in uh, three weeks. Yeah, and Darren sent me a Google Doc to start filling up dates and all that. And, uh, you know, like I say we're looking at getting uh, 
Yuka Hanakova back on. Um, I don't know Terra says he wants to come back on, talk about planes again. Um, I don't know. There's uh, oh John Jansen a while back mentioned he's interested. Um, and, and we've had some fairly famous people who have been on the show, uh, such as John Chatterton. He's he's always said he he'll be on again, and I've even heard that uh, Jill had given us a blessing, but we'd just been bad at getting back with her. So I'm I'm sure we'll mm-hmm. be able to corral her on. She's she's been really good at being on. Could we like? have a roast for a guest you know i mean maybe like let's get the guys on support we, we could do a roast a roast you know? civil but, war I mean, gold it, is what you're saying yes 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 like invite someone on like hey you I know kevin, kevin dykstra we'd, we'd love to have you on our program we need to invite you on it come on and then we just just chew them out just tear them out make make them uh, cry let's do that um, come no, on please I, I, oh I, man no i i i don't think i would quite be the uh I, I wouldn't mind doing a roast, but the best thing about a roast is that somebody agrees to it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't Not necessarily. Like, just, uh, <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, I wouldn't poach somebody. Uh, I, mean, I, I would. <laughs> I, I would. If, Civil War Gold? Oh, yeah, I would do that. Although, isn't John Chatterton someone involved in the production of that there? So, yeah, well, we, it's, uh, it's an affiliated uh, program with some of them that he's been involved with. Yeah, we don't we don't want to roast John Chatterton though. But th- there are no. some names that I, I'm not going to go into because yeah, we try not to be disparaging in you know on, on people here. But uh, there's some people here which we could people in the dive community. I mean, and there, there's some big names who are on um, oh the Anarchy Scuba Board, uh, the Anarchy Scuba Facebook page. Uh, I mean, they 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 put on a good face on TV, but you get them like in a personal chat, and they are assholes and <laughs> be like to let's bring him on here let's bring him on i, I, I got some needle tape out of the program here i want to get on I, here. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid i have or maybe it's fortunate i have not run run into this most most of my contacts are pretty good uh you know there was some scuba board early on that i think is just nature of a forum where where people are trying to give you advice who haven't been in the water for 15 years and you know you yeah. just kind of have to say if, if, if you're not diving i'm, I'm really going to discount some of what you said you know, if, if you're diving a, a double hose regulator and it's not a rebreather, then uh, yeah. <laughs> D- D- Derek is warning us that Craig is still recording here. Yeah, but Derek, yeah. <laughs> Derek can edit this stuff out. You know, you, you, you guys are getting like the, uh, I, the insider here. Yeah, I, I have edited some out, but the, the joke is that most of the stuff where I say I've edited out the the part talking about editing. So you never know. I mean, this is all manipulation. <laughs> I'm a master. Uh, manipulator you know this is all yeah, this, this is all about the the uh the global one world order or whatever we call it now hey this is like photoshopping for podcasts here so yeah yeah you, you never know what we really said we we were actually talking about uh daffodils and sunshine we weren't talking about mm-hmm. diving mm-hmm. yeah but but daffodils and su- sunshine are code words code names for a couple of professional <laughs> personalities want to roast like kevin dykstra hint 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 no come on let's, let's get the war gold people come on darren i want to do that man that could be a lot of course of course I mean, i'm sure he's, he's one of our main listeners and all that so he's going to hear this and just boost his ego now so well so so here you know if, if you donate to patreon we can make sure that you don't get on the roast Maybe, is, that, <laughs> is that is that is that an alternate uh Oh, way of doing it. I yeah. don't know. If, you know, if, if this is the only episode somebody's listened to, they're going to think we roast people all the time. No, uh, well, not, not intentionally. So, protection but, money, hush money. 
there's there's uh, a couple names though. I mean, yeah, yeah. Rick says we need protection money here. I don't yeah. know. But there's a few okay. names that we we could we could have a lot of fun with this. We really could. Okay. I mean, uh, I, I mean, keep talking about those other podcasts we need. There are other podcasts. I thought we were the only scoop of podcast. Right? Oh no, there was there was one I didn't talk about where it was uh, one of the websites who hosts their own podcast made the top 10 podcasts for scuba uh, diving, which yeah. I was thinking, you know, last time I looked and I probably need to look again, there was only about four who were recording regularly, but mm-hmm. we were number 10 out of 10. And I was thinking, and they, pl- they talked politely about everybody, but that is, uh, and, and that's fine. We might not be everybody's taste, but I was thinking 10 or 10. <laughs> so mm. there uh, are 10. Okay. I didn't know there were 10. So, yeah, there, there there is a bunch, and some of them we, we've we've heard of, and you know we we certainly don't pretend to be the only one, and we may we may not be uh, everybody's cup of tea, but uh, well, like I said, we 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 have some some genuinely good people lined up here that want to come on the program. I know Ross Richardson has mm-hmm. uh, he has a new find. Uh, he's been speaking a bit about the uh, Kimball, some of the programs. I don't know. Uh, it's been hard to get out to see some of the shows, of course, with COVID these days. Yeah. But uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, he's been on before, so it'd be nice to have him on again. Yeah, I, I, I talked to him a while back. He, he interested me on. You know, there's a whole line of people we could have on. I've seen that uh, David Trotter has been doing interviews again. He was kind of off the circuit for a while, but he's back on now. So yeah. uh, you know, might be able to get Ken Merriman in here talk about his bit because he's got something he found recently, which I can't talk about right now. But you'll hear about it, but you can't hear it from me. Um, I know there's a lot of good people that want to be on, that we can get on the program here, and we're working on having them on every other program. So, all right, well, well, I cool. Think, I think we're to that time of the show. Let me get in my plug, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, well, I do want to encourage everyone to uh, please support your local dive center. You know, we all like it in those deals online, but those deals online aren't going to aren't going to filter scuba tanks. Also. Uh, our libraries are really struggling these days, especially during COVID. Any chance you have to uh, vote in, in a millage, get them more money, please support your libraries. You know, patronize them, use them. They are great people, great staff. Everyone seems to think that all the information we need is on Google, but there's a tremendous amount of information which is not being digitized. And when those libraries are lost, the information will be lost with them. So please support your libraries. Okay. So let me see. Let's go down here. Um, James is walking onto a downtown street one day, and he sees his old high school friend, Harry. A little ways up ahead, he says, Harry, Harry, how are you? He greets his old buddy after to get his attention. Not so good, says Harry. Well, what's happened, James queries. Well, Harry says, I went bankrupt, and I've still got to feed my family, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, it could have been worse, James said calmly. It could have been worse. Month or so later, James encounters Harry in a restaurant and says, "Hey, and how are things?" He asks. "Terrible," says Harry. "Our house burned down last night." "Ah, it could have been worse," says James, again with a plum, and uh, goes about his business. A month later, James runs into Harry a third time. "Well, how goes it?" He inquires. "Oh, things just get worse and worse. One tragedy after another. Now my wife has left me." Harry nods his head and gives his usual optimistic, seeming little smile, accompanied by his words, "Ah, well, it could have been worse." This time, Harry grabs James by shoulder. He says, wait a minute, he says. I'm not going to let you off so easy this time. Three times in the past month, I've run into you 
And every time you've told me the latest disaster in my life, every time you say it could have been worse. This time, for God's sakes, Harry, I want you to tell me how in heaven's name could it have been any worse? James looks at Harry with a little wisp of a smile and says, well, it could have been worse. It could have happened to me. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. A little I, compassion I think, there. I think I think something's going to happen to James there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, for some reason, it's not telling me what the next step is. So I think there may have been something that, that was a little worse. Should we be looking for uh, James in the river next time? Yeah. Yeah. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe and have a good time doing it. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've tried a few, and occasionally you'll get a flavor which you like. What the heck is that? And you have to read the package to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, but they're nice because you can make a hot meal out on the boat, and we strictly don't do open flame when we're offshore of the boat. But, uh, you know, they are convenient, and they're quite filling because they're designed for you know young guys who are out carrying their guns all through the woods all day long, forty forty pound packs, and uh, you know for those of us a little bit slower metabolism. Um, actually one of them makes a, makes for a meal for Amy and I both, but yeah, like the, you know, the genuine Sopco MREs are pretty good eating stuff. Most of them are. Don't touch the beef stew. Give it to your dog if your dog's been bad. Oh, I'm going to pita on me now. <laughs> okay. So, it's 936. Are you ready? Parties we're going to get. Okay. So here we go.